Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Saturday, February the 12th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again uh, to yet another edition of our program. Uh, this program features our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the South African vaccine manufacturing plants, uh, which are poised to provide widespread assistance to the African continent. Envoys from Ethiopia and South Sudan have held talks on various issues of interest to both countries. In the Republic of Sudan, the military is still attempting to retain power amid a resurgence in the mass democratic movement. And the World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa has expressed optimism on the public health futures. In the second hour, uh, we continue our focus on the annual commemoration of African American History Month uh, with a focus on scholar W.B. Du Bois and journalist Alice Gunnington. Finally, we listen to a briefing from the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on the current status of the pandemic and related questions. Uh, these and other issues will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, uh, so stay tuned. We'll take a musical interlude uh, in the Republic of Congo. Let's listen in.
lingina la tabilamba oyo ya malonga Na pendela kamibali po balinganga Na balateo, na balateo mama Na pesigalite ya na moni Na kokiko balali susute na moni Na kovandante poye
Welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, that was uh, music from the Republic of Congo, uh, Brazzaville, with uh, Mariah Mariah Bavon, uh, Negro Success, uh, from uh, 1970. And uh, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program and our lead story deals uh, with the situation in South Africa in regard to its development of COVID-19 vaccine production facilities. Now, in a story out of Cape Town uh, by Sia Pierce-Jones, it says that the World Health Organization's Director General, Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus, says that he is pleased uh, with the progress being made in Cape Town's uh, vaccine manufacturing facilities. He wrapped up the second day of his tour of local facilities uh, earlier today. The BioVac site in Pineland uh, was officially opened in 2003 and joined the fight against the coronavirus in 2020. By 2024, together with uh, Aprogen, the company hoped to start upscaling uh, COVID vaccines. Gabriesus believes uh, South Africa is well on its way to becoming a leader in the vaccination business. He said that we've developed this hub uh, 
which could be a strategic solution to the problems we're facing, uh, he said. Joined by Belgium, government officials, Gabriel Jesus stressed the importance of cooperative <clears throat> collaboration uh, in addressing the pandemic. In regard to developments in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia's ambassador in South Sudan, Nabil Mahdi, and the security advisor to South Sudan, President Salva Kiir, uh, Galyuak on uh, Wednesday exchanged views on common interest matters. Nabil also briefed uh, Galyuak about the recent developments in Ethiopia. The ambassador said the Ethiopian government took initiatives to conduct an all-inclusive national dialogue to create a national consensus. According uh, to the Ethiopian envoy, the proposed national dialogue seeks to foster trust and confidence among the different stakeholders inside the country. <clears throat> he said, uh, despite the government's efforts for lasting peace, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, TPLF, continued wreaking havoc in neighboring regions. Nabil, however, urged uh, Goodlock uh, to work on the already existing joint border security mechanisms between South Sudan and Ethiopia. For his part, uh, Kiara's security advisor reiterated South Sudan's commitment to the historical relations uh, between the two countries. He further lauded the Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's uh, wise leadership towards bringing peace and tranquility uh, back to Ethiopia. <clears throat> You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In the Republic of Sudan, the Foreign Ministry on Thursday condemned tweets by ambassadors of the Troika countries and described their statements as blatant interference in Sudan's internal affairs. The U.S., uh, the U.K., and Norway diplomats in Khartoum condemned uh, the arrest of two leading members of the Forces of Freedom and Change, saying this move would hamper the ongoing efforts to settle the ongoing crisis triggered by the coup that took place on October 25th of last year. In a statement on Thursday, the foreign ministry said it had, quote, noted with astonishment tweets that lacked tact and diplomatic prudence issued by some ambassadors accredited to Sudan in connection with the arrest of two Sudanese citizens under the provisions of the applicable national laws. Uh, this is a blatant interference in the Sudan's internal affairs and contrary to diplomatic norms and practices, stressed the statement. After uh, here, Abu Haja, media advisor of the head of the Sovereign Council, which is a military-dominated uh, entity, said that the former cabinet minister and the prominent member of the Empowerment Removal Committee are facing criminal charges related to public funds without elaborating. Abu Haja said they cannot be released before dispersing money without disclosing the reason for their arrest. Before his arrest, ERC member Wagdi Saleh said he was charged with misappropriating entrusted funds under Article 177-2 of the Penal Code following a lawsuit filed by the Finance Ministry. The defense team of the detained political leaders handed over a memo requesting their immediate release, pointing to procedural and substantive uh, flaws in the interest for the arrest. The ERC was criticized by many detractors, but no one accused them of breaching the trust. The Troika, the European Union, Canada, and Switzerland issued a joint statement to condemn the arrest of the political opponents call and call them uh, for the immediate release. We condemn this harassment and intimidation on the part of Sudan's military authorities, reads the joint statement. 
It also says this is wholly inconsistent uh, with their stated commitment to participate constructively in a facilitated process to resolve Sudan's political crisis to return to a democratic transition. The joint statement further calls to end the targeting of political leaders, civil society activists, journalists, and humanitarian workers. We remind Sudan's military authorities of their obligations to respect the human rights and guarantee the safety of those detained or arrested and the need to ensure that due process is consistently followed in all cases, said the statement. General Al-Bahan several times reassured Western diplomats of his commitment to achieve democratic reforms, including the security sector reforms and prepare for elections. However, the military leader restored the former repressive security agencies and reinstated the Islamist cadres uh, who were part of the former regime, casting doubt on his real intentions. And finally, the United Nations Regional Health Chief for Africa said that if current trends continue, she sees light at the end of the tunnel uh, for the continent. Speaking at a virtual news conference from Congo, Brazzaville, the WHA regional head uh, added that the challenge remains getting people vaccinated. As we stand here today, we're finally able to state that if the continent and if the current trends on the continent hold, there's light at the end of the tunnel as long as we remain vigilant and we act intensively, particularly on vaccination. The continent of Africa is on track for controlling the pandemic, says uh, Masadiso Muete, uh, adding that it has been an extremely difficult two years, but against all odds, Africa is weathering this terrible storm. The continent's long history and experience with large outbreaks, along with the accumulation of learning and expertise since the onset of COVID-19, has seen the response become more effective with each new wave. According uh, to the World Health Organization's experts, Africa is now transitioning into an endemic phase, which requires a long-term approach. She said that, of course, we have to expect that there may be variants and understand what could be the characteristics of those variants. Transmission is concerned, and as far as the lethality causing death is concerned, I believe that we are transitioning from the pandemic phase, and we will now need to manage the presence of this virus in the long term added uh, Dr. Masadiso Muete, who is the World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa. Now, according to United Nations figures, Africa has seen 11 million reported cases of COVID-19 over the last two years, with just over a quarter of a million deaths, the equivalent to around 3% of the global cases and just over 4% of global deaths. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of the Pan-African Journal. And uh, in concluding uh, this uh, segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. This press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African 
Newswire, uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day. Uh, just go uh, to our website, and that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, February 12th, uh, 2022, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. A thought in my head, I think, of something to do. Expressions tell everything. I see one on you. Whoa, 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 whoa. My love, she comes in colors. You can tell her from the clothes she wears When I was invisible I needed no light You saw right through me, you said Was I out of sight? Whoa, 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 whoa My love, she comes in color You can tell her from the clothes she wears. Whoa, 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 my love, she comes in color. You can tell her from the clothes she wears. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the band uh, Love, She Comes in Color. Uh, the band Love, uh, led by Arthur Lee and Johnny Eccles uh, from uh, Los Angeles. And uh, this is uh, still African American History Month. And uh, we have been uh, focusing on uh, some aspects of uh, the history of African people in the United States and around the world, uh, as we do 
every week uh, here at the uh, Pan-African Journal. And, of course, we will continue that uh, this week uh, and uh, the future weeks uh, throughout this month. And, of course, uh, last week uh, we focused on uh, the various aspects of uh, African uh, life and history. Uh, there was a uh, information on uh, the founder, uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson, uh, his contribution uh, to African-American historiography, as well as the contribution of uh, educator, journalist, uh, organizer, and public speaker, campaigner, uh, Ida B. Wells uh, Barnett. Uh, right now we want to focus on uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, and uh, he, of course, had uh, made a monumental uh, contribution. Uh, the first uh, segment we'll hear related to Du Bois is his contribution to the Pan-African movement uh, dating back to the late 19th century and extending uh, to his transition in 1963. Let's listen in. And I got the idea that here was a chance to do something for Africa. I wrote to President Wilson and... Uh, told him that at the peace conference in Versailles they ought to take up the matter of the German colonies and since the Allies now are in charge that they ought to set those colonies up as free independent states and uh, put them under an international committee on which uh, Africans should be members. Mr. Wilson didn't answer that letter but the uh, the American committee over there considered it, and uh, out of that really came the uh, the Mandates Commission. On the other hand, when I got to Paris, I tried to organize a Pan-African Congress. There had been a Pan-African Conference in 1900, which I had attended and uh, wrote the resolutions, but that had died. When I tried to organize this Pan-African Congress, I was told that Paris was under martial law and that we couldn't have anything of that sort. The Americans discouraged it. But uh, I went to the black man who was uh, instrumental in bringing something like uh, 100,000 black soldiers from Africa to help in the First World War and really turn back the Germans. And uh, Dianya went to the Prime Minister, and the Prime Minister said I could have the Congress. But, uh, of course, the uh, America and Great Britain and so forth wouldn't allow anybody to have passports to get over there. So the Congress was rather small. We had 57 delegates, people, Negroes, who happened to be in uh, Paris at the time, a few Africans, a few Negro Americans, and some whites. We had this first Pan-African Congress in, in 1919 at the Grand Hotel. And then after the World War, in 1921, we held a much larger Congress with uh, some two or three hundred people and a good many from Africa. And that uh, aroused the colonial powers. They got very much excited because they thought I was trying to start a revolution in Africa, which I wasn't at all. What I was trying to do was to get educated Africans in various parts of the world to come together and know each other 
and talk with each other and see what kind of program could be laid down for the uh, future emancipation of the Africans in their own country. I was held several Pan-African Congresses after that. There were none that were as great and comprehensive as the second in 1921, but uh, there was one in uh, 1923 in which uh, leading Englishmen took part. That took place in London, Paris. And uh, in 1924, I think, in Lisbon, where we got members of the uh, Portuguese parliament and some of the colonial officials. Uh, welcome back. Uh, that were excerpts uh, from um, Dr. W.B. Du Bois uh, speaking about his involvement, the initial phase of the Pan-African movement, uh, his involvement after 1900. Uh, through uh, 1921. And, uh, of course, uh, we want to uh, play another excerpt uh, from uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois uh, from a speech uh, he delivered in Los Angeles in 1953 on the uh, struggle for African independence. Let's listen in. The opportunity on this visit to Los Angeles to speak to you on world peace and revolt in Africa. These subjects, together with that of the problems of minorities in the United States, form, in fact, one problem when brought together and viewed in unity. It is that task which I ask you to permit me to essay tonight and to approach it from the point of view of what we usually call the Negro problems. All so-called social problems tend to merge. They all have to do with human actions and are based on human customs and treat the numerous and intricate relations of human beings. Moreover, particular social problems, despite the names they bear, change and change radically in the course of time. Indeed, social problems change more often and in more ways than physical problems because of the unpredictable variations in human feelings and choices. They are subject to the same physical laws as sticks and stones, but there is enough of what we call will and volition to make it necessary for persons who are studying a human problem or trying to conduct their action in accordance with its present manifestations to keep a weary eye on changes and on current facts. For instance, in the United States during the young manhood of Frederick Douglass, the Negro problem was the problem of slavery. There were, of course, minor and connected problems, but they were all subjected to the main problem of human freedom. Then rather suddenly, between 1863 and 1876, the Negro problem became a problem of political enfranchisement and party government, which rapidly descended into race war, leading to temporary attempts to grapple with problems of work and education. But finally, 
ending in practical disfranchisement of the entire Negro race in the South in 1876. From 1876 until our day, the race problem in the United States of the Negro has been primarily a struggle to regain the right to vote in the midst of caste discrimination, changing slowly but definitely to a problem of the right to work and to be trained for work at all levels, and to a struggle for broad civil and social rights. Most of you, I think, assume that this is still the Negro problem. But you must be warned that it is not wholly or mainly that now. That the reason that it is not is because of the fundamental changes now spreading over the whole world. Whereas in the 18th century the world thought that progress and emancipation were coming from popular education and universal suffrage, we know now that more fundamental than these important rights is the economic organization of the world. That is, the way in which the labor of human beings is organized to satisfy human needs. This question is so fundamental that all other questions of political power, of education and human happiness depend upon it. This is the basic reason for the rise of philanthropy, of socialism, and the attempt at complete realization of socialism through communism. It is immaterial whether or not you like or accept socialism or communism. The absolute compulsion of your facing the problem which they try to solve is inescapable. While I am sure most of you realize this worldwide change of emphasis, I doubt if you see how this affects the Negro problem in the United States. Because most American Negroes of education and property have long since oversimplified their problem and tried to separate it from all other social problems. They conceive that their fight is simply to have the same rights and privileges as other American citizens. They do not for a moment stop to question how far the organization of work and distribution of wealth in America is perfect. Nor do they for a moment conceive that the economic organization of America may have fundamental injustices and shortcomings which seriously affect not only Negroes, but the whole world. Just as Booker Washington in his day assumed that American ideals were complete and right, that all we had to do was to fight to imitate and attain them, so today we Negroes are largely quite swept away by the miracles of American industry, the huge accumulation of wealth, and the conspicuous expenditure which we find about us. Our idea of heaven is to be rich Americans, to make the kind of show in home, dress, and automobiles that is so popular in America, and to suffer in our effort to do these things that we should be able to do them with no discrimination on account of race or color. This is dangerously short-sighted.
We American Negroes are part of the working force of the world. Not only do we represent an important segment of the American working class, but also of the working classes of Europe, Asia, and Africa, and the other Americas. In these days of uncertainty, we have to live and here in the United States, where for many, it is difficult to earn a living without selling one's soul to falsehood and greed. And that was... Welcome back. Uh, that was uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois in 1957, speaking in Los Angeles on uh, the colonial, anti-colonial struggle. Uh, we want to hear another um, address uh, by Dr. W.B. Du Bois on the struggle. This was delivered in 1960, and you can hear him uh, developing the same theme uh, around uh, the struggle inside the United States. This is uh, leading up to the period uh, where he left uh, the United States on for the final time uh, to take up residence in the then uh, Republic of Ghana under Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. Du Bois became a citizen of Ghana uh, after uh, 1961. Let's listen to Du Bois in 1960 speaking on the African-American struggle. Has reached a point in his progress where he needs to take serious account of where he is and where he is going. This day has come much earlier than I thought it would. I wrote in 1940 a book called Dust of Dawn, in which I sought to record our situation in a period of change. And I expected that period to last for another 50 years. But the Second World War and the rise of socialism and communism has hastened the event. And we are definitely approaching now a time when the American Negro will become in law equal in citizenship to other Americans. There is much hard work yet to be done before the Negro becomes a voter, before he has equal rights in education, and before he can claim complete civil and social equality in this nation. Yet this situation is in sight, and it brings not as many assume an end to the so-called Negro problems, but the beginning of even more difficult problems of race and culture. Because we must now ask ourselves, when we become equal American citizens, what will be our aims and ideals? And what will we have to do with the selecting of these aims and ideals? Are we to assume that we will simply adopt the ideals of Americans and become what they are or want to be, and that we will have in this process no ideals of our own. That would mean that we would cease to be Negroes as such and become white 
in action if not completely in color. We will take our culture from white Americans doing as they do and thinking as they think. Manifestly this would not be satisfactory. Physically it would mean that we would be integrated with Americans, losing first of all the physical evidence of color and hair and racial type. We would lose our memory of Negro history and of those racial peculiarities with which we have been long associated. We would cease to acknowledge any greater tie with Africa than with England or Germany. We will not try to develop Negro music and art and literature as distinctive and different, but allow it to be further degrading as it is today. We will always, if possible, marry lighter hued people so as to have children who are not identified with the Negro race and thus solve our racial problem in America by committing racial suicide. More or less clearly, this possibility has been in the minds of Negroes in the past, although not assented to by all. Some have stated it and welcomed it. Others have simply assumed that this development was in inevitable and therefore that nothing could be done about it. This is the reason that my Pan-African movement, which began in 1900 when I cooperated with a meeting in London, and which was definitely started in 1919 in the first Pan-African Congress. I could get but little support or cooperation from American Negroes. Most of them resented it as being a sort of back-to-Africa movement. Others simply said we have enough problems in America without taking on the insoluble problems of Africa. Today, when the African people are themselves arising to settle their own problems and are in the peculiar, we are in the peculiar position of being a group persons of legal descent with some education, with intelligence, who not only cannot help the Africans, but in many cases do not want to. Any statement of our desire to develop American Negro culture, to keep our own ties with colored peoples, to remember our past, is being regarded as racism. I, for instance, who have devoted my life to efforts to break down racial problems, racial barriers, and being accused of desiring to emphasize differences of race. This has a certain element of truth. As I have said before, and as I repeat, I am not fighting to settle the question of racial equality in America by the process of getting rid of the Negro race, not producing black children, forgetting the slave trade and slavery, 
and the struggle for emancipation, for getting abolition, and especially of ignoring the whole cultural history of Africans in the world. No. What I have been fighting for, and am still fighting, is the possibility of black folk and black cultural patterns existing in America without discrimination and on terms of equality. If we take this attitude, we have got to do so consciously and deliberately. This brings up a number of different, uh, difficult problems which we will have to solve and make definite preparation for such solution. Take for instance the current problem of the education of our children. By the law of the land today, they should be admitted to the public schools. If and when they are admitted to these schools, certain things will inevitably follow. Negro teachers will become rarer and in many cases quite disappear. Negro children will be instructed in public schools and taught under unpleasant, if not discouraging, circumstances. Even more largely than today, they will fall out of school, cease to enter high school, and fewer and fewer will go to college. Theoretically, Negro universities will disappear. Negro history will be taught less or not at all. And as in so many cases in the past, Negroes will remember their white or Indian ancestors and quite forget their black forebears. Read, for instance, the autobiography of John Mercer Langston. To some folk, this type of argument would lead to the conclusion that we ought to refuse to enter high schools or to clamor for unsegregated schools. In other words, that we ought to give up the fight against color discrimination. I want, however, to emphasize that this not only is unnecessary, but impossible. We must accept equality or die. What we must also do is to lay down a line of thought and action which will accomplish two things, the utter disappearance of color discrimination in American life and the preservation of African history and culture as a valuable contribution to modern civilization as it was to medieval and ancient civilization. To do this is not easy. It calls for intelligence, cooperation, and careful planning. It would meet head-on the baffling difficulties of faces today. Here, for instance, is the boy who says simply, he's not going to school. His treatment in the schools, even if admitted, is such that does not attract him. Moreover, the boy who does enter the integrated school and gets on reasonably well does not always become a useful member of our group. Negro children educated in such schools, in northern colleges, 
know nothing of Negro history, know nothing of Negro leadership, and doubt if there ever have been Negro leaders in Africa, the West Indies, and the United States who equal white folk. Some even become ashamed of themselves and their hope. They regard the study of Negro biography and the writing of Negro literature as a vain attempt to pretend that Negroes are really the equals of whites. That may be often the point of view of those of our children who are educated in white schools. There are going to be schools which do not discriminate against colored people, and the number is going to increase slowly in the present, but rapidly in the future, until long before the year 2000, there will be no school segregation on the basis of race. The deficiency in knowledge of Negro history and culture, however, will remain, and this danger must be met, or else American Negroes will disappear. Their history and their culture will be lost. Their connection with the rising African world will be impossible. What then can we do, or should we try to do? Negro parents and Negro parent teachers associations will have, at least temporarily, to take on and carry the burden which they have hitherto lent to the public schools. The child in the family, in specific organizations, or in social life, must learn, but he does not learn in school, until the public schools become what they should be. Negro history must be taught for many critical years by parents, in clubs, by lecture courses, by a new Negro literature which Negroes must write and buy. This must be done systematically for the whole Negro race in the United States and elsewhere. This is going to take time and money and is going to call for racial organization. Negro communities, Negro private schools will and must be organized and supported this racial organization, however, will be voluntary and not compulsory. It will not be discriminatory. It will be carried on according to definite object and ideal and will be open to all who share this ideal. And of course, that ideal must always be in accord with the greater ideals of mankind. But what American Negroes must remember is that voluntary organization for great ends is far different from compulsory segregation for evil purposes. Especially and first, there has got to be a deliberate effort made toward the building of Negro families. Our family organization has been left almost entirely to chance. How, and where, the Negro boy and girl is going to meet and mate has been given no organized thought, and in many cases the whole process has been deliberately ignored. 
Beyond that comes the primary question of what an equal child is to do in life. This has been taught only incidentally and accidentally in economics or in ethics, outside and beyond school, in the family and in religious organizations. The Negro race has got to impress upon its children certain fundamental facts. The normal human being must work and work regularly to supply his wants, such legitimate wants as food and clothes and shelter. In addition, there must be creative activities, such as we understand under art and literature. And then, there must be systematic recreation for health, for normal satisfying of the sexual instinct, for social contact, for sympathy, friendship, love, and sacrifice. In this matter of life vocation, we Negroes have got to inculcate in the minds of our children many objects to which white America today is not only opposed, but bitterly fights. Why should a man be a physician? Not simply to cure disease and treat accidents, but to prevent disease and protect health. Today, most physicians, white and black, have no time for this. This is the object of social medicine and is practiced in most of Europe, both Western and Eastern, and in China. While the American Medical Association fights with huge funds every effort to bring government-supported social medicine to the service of the people. Why should a man study law but to see that justice is done, and yet the chief service and huge pay of lawyers today in America is to guide wealthy and powerful corporations in breaking the law and in putting on the statute books laws which discriminate against the poor. Our jails are bursting with prisoners who have no one to defend them even when they have committed no crime. Why should a man become a dentist? Not to extract teeth, but to prevent teeth from becoming diseased. The schools of the socialist and communist world are doing this. Our schools have scarcely begun. What is the object of business? Americans say profits. And in order to make profits large, we are spending $50,000 million a year for war. This war is carried on to make exploitation of land and labor possible, to steal materials and cheap laborers. When northern Rhodesia sells her copper for $36 million, she pays nothing for the land out of which the copper comes, and only half a million dollars for the black labor that mines it. $20 million goes to the investors in Europe and America, and the rest to machines and fake European labor. The object of business should not be profit, but service. The service of collecting raw material 
of processing it for consumption and bringing it to the consumer. For this service, wages should be paid. But vast unearned income should not be given to the man who steals land and takes from the laborer that which is his due. This is increasingly the belief of civilized countries, but it is not the belief of much of Western Europe nor of White America. The correct attitude toward vocations then must be taught increasingly in our schools. Yet today, in American schools and colleges, white and black, economics, social science, money and finance are not properly taught. And especially, most schools and colleges are afraid to teach the remedies which socialism and communism propose for better distribution of wealth and income, or to tell how the larger part of the civilized world is adopting these methods of accomplishing these things. I pause to remark that your program committee has shown positive genius in not even mentioning once the word socialism in this program. Yet, socialists say most of the money which we pay for telephone service, for electrical devices, and for power goes to make a few individuals rich and not for paying good wages or making these services cheap. Insurance is a great invention designed to place the cost of death and accident on the whole community instead of having it ruin the individual. Here is no place for private property. The premium should pay for the loss and the wages of management. But today, above this, individuals in insurance make millions and private insurance companies control national money and credit. Evidently, insurance is a public function and not a private enterprise. The great American world, of which we for centuries have been trying to become a part, and which has risen to be one of the most powerful nations in the world, is today losing its influence. And that American Negroes do not realize. There was a time when, as leader of a new democracy, as believers in a new tolerance in religion, as a people basing their life on equality of opportunity in the ownership of land and property, the United States stood first in the minds of mankind. That day has passed. I took a trip recently that lasted a year. I had already traveled widely. I had been to Europe 15 times. I had been to Asia. I had circled the world. Then for 10 years, I was imprisoned in the confines of the United States by the unauthorized dictum of those who were ruling. 
From 1950 to 1958, I was not allowed to travel abroad. The reason was that I had cooperated with millions of men who wanted war to cease. Even here, my action had been simply to tell Americans what was being done by other countries to promote peace. For this, I was accused of being the agent of foreign peacemakers and ordered to admit this or go to jail. It cost me over $30,000 to defend myself in court against this absurd accusation. This sum I and my wife had to beg from the public traveling from state to state. The court threw the case out of court for lack of proof. Despite this, I was refused a passport to travel abroad until the Supreme Court finally decided that the Department of State had no legal ground to refuse me a passport. Paul Rosen, who for ten years had been deprived of a livelihood for equally baseless reasons, he and myself and a few others were given passports. I and my wife went abroad to Great Britain and Holland, to France and Czechoslovakia, to Sweden and Germany, to the Soviet Union, and to the Chinese Republic. It was the most astonishing trip I have ever had. It radically changed my whole point of view. I saw first that America and its actions since the First World War was thoroughly condemned by the civilized world that no other country was so disliked and hated. And for fear of our wealth and power, there were certain countries like the British and the Dutch who restrained their expression of dislike. Nevertheless, they did not like America or Americans. That the French could hardly mention America without calling them dirty. That the people of Czechoslovakia and Germany blamed America for the cruelties which they had suffers, suffered and for the difficulties which they were facing. That the 200 million people in the Soviet Union regarded Americans as their greatest threat and that the 680 millions of China hate America with perfect hatred for treating them as subhuman. Outside this matter of feeling was my discovery that the world was going socialist, that most people in the world, in Europe, Asia, and even Africa, were either socialistic or communistic. No matter what our attitude is toward socialism and communism, no matter how we judge the teachings of Karl Marx, we must face the truth. Not only black, but white Americans must know, and they do not know. The news gathering agencies and peri periodicals of opinion in the United States are deliberately deceiving the people with regard to the rest of the world. For a long time, they have spread the belief that communism is a crime 
or a conspiracy, and that anyone, either taking part or even examining conditions in the socialist lands, is a self-conscious criminal or a fool. For decades now, they have made Americans believe that communism is a failure, that the Russian people and the people of Hungary and Czechoslovakia and the Balkans are prisoners enslaved in thought and action, that communism only needed our help to fall in ruins, that China is trying to conquer all Asia. Despite all this propaganda, we are beginning now to realize some things that are clear, that the Soviet Union has made color prejudice illegal, that she has a system of education probably the best in the world and far superior to ours, that science there is forging ahead of anything that we have, and that the people are not prisoners and are not asking our help in order to revolt. They are progressing at a rate superior to us in art, literature, and general happiness. I spent six weeks in China. I was treated with a courtesy that I had known nowhere else of the world. And I was convinced that here is a colored people whom happiness and knowledge would outstrip the world before the dawn of the next century. The work of China today is a miracle of success. What we Americans want is freedom to know the truth and the right, to think and to act as seems wisest to us under the democratic process. And what we have to remember is that in the United States, democracy has almost disappeared. There is no use deceiving ourselves in that respect. Half the citizens of the United States do not even go to the polls. Most Negroes are disfranchised. It is the considered opinion of social scientists in America that the election which made Dwight Eisenhower president cost over $100 million and perhaps $200 million. Why does America need such an election fund? A democratic election does not need it, and the United States needed and used it only for bribing voters directly or indirectly or frightening men from thinking. This is what the rulers of the United States demand, and those rulers, instead of being free individuals, are organized corporations who suppress freedom by monopolizing wealth. If all this is true, it must be taught to our youth. It must be taught by teachers and instructors and professors. And in this case, we must face the fact that these teachers may lose their jobs. They can only be supported and employed in the bulk, by the bulk of Americans, the bulk of American Negroes, support institutions which teach this. If the Negro or white colleges are going to depend on the gifts of the rich for support, they cannot teach the truth. If they are supported tomorrow, Negroes must give not a tenth but a quarter of their income 
to support education and social opposition, and teachers must sacrifice themselves to the last penny. This impoverishment of the truth seekers can be avoided by eventually making the state bear the burden of education, and this is socialism. We must vote then for this kind of socialism. We began this in the New Deal, and we were stopped. But in Europe and Asia, and also in Africa, socialism and communism are spreading. Socialism will grow in the United States if we restore the democracy of which we have boasted so long and done so little. Here is where Negroes may and must lead. This is my sincere belief, arrived at after long study, travel, observation, and thought. Many disagree with me, and that is their right. They have every right, to every opportunity, to express their belief, and you cannot escape listening to them. And should not, if you could. <coughs> but they have no right to demand that you refuse to listen to the worldwide voice of socialism or to threaten you with punishment if you do listen. This is the first right of democracy, the right to listen. I appeal to the members of this organization, first to teach the truth as they see it, even if they lose their jobs, to study socialism Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, an address uh, delivered in 1960 by Dr. W.B. Du Bois. And uh, we're commemorating um, our annual African American History Month. And um, this uh, year, our focus uh, has been on uh, various uh, luminaries uh, from the African world. Uh, We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Sharp, and uh, I do love you. And uh, we're listening uh, to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast uh, for Saturday, February 12th, uh, 2022. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, we're going to continue our commemoration of African American History Month uh, with a review of the life, times, and contributions of Alice Dunnigan, uh, the pioneering African-American uh, journalist uh, who wrote for years uh, for the Associated uh, Negro Press uh, that was founded and uh, supported and extended for decades uh, by Claude Barnett. Uh, let's listen in uh, to uh, this contribution on Alice Dunnigan and her role in uh, journalism uh, during the 20th century. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., Well, good afternoon. Welcome, welcome to the Library of Congress. I've just poured two glasses of water. One is for our speaker and one is for me. I'm John Cole, the director of the Center for the Book, and I'm having a hoarse voice problem this week, but I know that I have enough left in me to get through this introduction, which gives me a great deal of pleasure to present uh, a special book that has a connection with a previous book that has appeared in a Center for the Book series. Uh, Let me tell you just for a minute a little bit about the Center for the Book. Uh, We were created in 1977 by Daniel Borston when he was Librarian of Congress, and his idea was the Library of Congress needed a public outreach organization to promote books and reading really for the general public and to get out and publicize the importance of books and reading and literacy in libraries. And while it includes scholarly books such as today's, which is published by the University of Georgia Press, actually the emphasis in many ways was on outreach and even on new media. And our very first project starting in 1979 was with, believe it or not, CBS television and it was called Read More About It. And when CBS had a program, the star of the program, some of you may remember those, they lasted for about a decade. The star of the program came out and said, if you enjoyed that, the program, the Library of Congress suggests you go to your local library and bookstore. For heaven's sakes, don't go to the Library of Congress. I, I said that, that wasn't part of the message. Go to your local library or bookstore they'll be happy to help you read more about it. But the fun part of that for us was it helped us develop partnerships with booksellers and with libraries and with others. And that got us started uh, in what will be in 19, excuse me, in 2017, the 40th uh, anniversary of our book and reading promotion project. One of our major projects is the National Book Festival. How many of you have been to the National Book Festival? Several of you, I hope. It's a a wonderful Library of Congress event in which the Center for the Book plays a key role, and we're very proud of the strategic role that we play. We also reach out to the states, kind of in the spirit of Dr. Borston, uh, through creating affiliated centers for the book that promote books and reading and often state authors. And so, for example, 
Uh, you know, there's a Texas Center for the book. Uh, there's one for each state. And we work with them uh, on several different kinds of projects. But one of them turns out to be the National Book Festival because there is a pavilion of the states that people from all over the country come to to show their wares. This year's festival was at the Washington Convention Center and was enormously successful and uh, we're eagerly making plans for what will be the 16th National Book Festival. And I hope that you will watch, our, watch the newspaper and stay in touch with us to learn when it's going to occur. Another important activity here at the Library of Congress is this kind of talk. We call this Books and Beyond, and the idea is to honor authors and new books that have been published in just recently that relate to, if not to the collections of the Library of Congress, at least to other libraries and research institutions. So we can always make the point that with all the research and hard work and editing that go behind uh, books, often they indeed do still get published and do still get sold and are still really major ways of sharing information. So these noontime talks uh, are also filmed uh, for the Library of Congress's website. So before we start, uh, I'd like to invite you to turn off all things electronic and to say uh, just a word about our format. And that will be a presentation uh, by our author, uh, Carol McKay Booker, but also then a chance for a question and answer period and a book signing to follow. And there are books for sale, and I hope you'll take advantage of, of that and talking to Carol uh, a bit about uh, the book and about the remarkable person who she's writing about. Um, Alice Dunnigan is going to be the topic of our uh, talk today. Uh, our author, uh, our editor author, uh, Carol McKay Booker, uh, has condensed Dunnigan's 1974 self-published autobiography to appeal to a broader audience and annotated it. And Carol is going to be able to tell you all about that. But I've learned a little bit from our own, from looking at the book and from our own press release is something else that will be a major topic. And that is Alice Dunnigan herself, who turns out to be quite a remarkable person um, and is a pioneer in the black press movement through her achievements. And I must say that, uh, and, and I will again defer to our author to give you more details. Uh, Carol herself uh, is a special person. Uh, Carol McKay Booker is a former journalist in Washington and a, also especially a Washington attorney. But the Center for the Book had the good fortune of sponsoring uh, of two, about just about two years ago this month, uh, a book with her husband, uh, journalist Simeon Booker. It was a program we had over in the Whithall Pavilion in another one of the library's buildings, and it was called Shocking the Conscience, a Reporter's Account of the Civil Rights Movement. So you can see that today's presentation and the previous presentation uh, are both uh, talk celebrating the civil rights anniversaries that are very much part of what the library is doing. And Simeon is here, and I would like him to raise a hand, and let's give him a round of applause to the author. 
the co-author at that time of what was a, and what remains to be a remarkable book. Uh, at this time, though, I would like to introduce Carol, who not only uh, will tell you how she managed to put this together, but I think give you a new appreciation of this important pioneer of national black press, Alice Dunnigan. Let's welcome Carol. I'll take my glass of water if I may. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Cole, and thank you all for coming. I, it gives me great pleasure to talk about this book here in the Library of Congress because the rebirth of the autobiography of Alice Dunnigan took place largely because of the help I received from staff of the Library of Congress. First of all, I fell in love with Alice Dunnigan right across the street in the Jefferson Building under that magnificent dome over the main reading room. And then I decided right then and there, more people have to be able to, to read this book. But to do it needed, it needed annotation, it needed some updating. Although she had a lot of good footnotes in it, it needed some more. And that's where I got a lot of help from the staff of the library, particularly the, the uh, newspaper and periodical reading room where I found access to many of the old newspapers, the black press papers that are available on the ProQuest and other databases so that you can see what she wrote about. Because Alice Dunnigan, while you may not have heard of her, she did more than any other journalist of her era to keep black Americans informed about what was going on in the struggle for civil rights. And I can say that without any fear of anybody contradicting it because of the, the numbers alone. She wrote headline front page stories for more than 100 black newspapers across the country. And they included the most influential, the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, the Norfolk Journal and Guide, as well as the New York Amsterdam News, the Baltimore and Washington <laughs> Afro, the Kansas City Plain Dealer, the Oklahoma Dispatch, the Los Angeles Sentinel, on and on. People learned what was going on in the Congress, in the White House, in Washington, in politics, and also out of Washington because she wasn't going to be kept just here. Alice wanted to go where the news was and she wanted to report it. And that's, she, why don't we know about her? Well, look at the times. First of all, we think of the civil rights movement starting with the Montgomery bus boycott. That's not really true. There were a lot of things going on in the 40s and 50s. And one of Alice's purposes in writing her book was to let you know that. The other thing she makes very clear in her introduction to the book is she wants it to be remembered the role of the black press and black writers generally in making known what she called the shenanigans of whites in trying to keep down the black population. Without black writers and black journalists, the black press, she said a lot of that would have been lost. The other thing she wanted to do in writing this, this book was to inspire young women never to give up. And in that regard, looking back on this magnificent career 
she asked one favor from us, one little request. She said, please do not judge me by the heights to which I have risen, but by the depths from which I came. That's paraphrasing Frederick Douglass, but it's, it's Alice Dunnigan. And that's why I want to look back to where she began in depression, pre-depression era and then coming through the depression in a border state. Now, a border state, Kentucky, was different from the Deep South, and that became apparent as she told her story. But before I get on to all of that, let me tell you how I got involved in this. Dr. Cole very kindly mentioned my husband, Simeon Booker, admittedly an icon of the black press and the civil rights movement. He was inducted into the National Association of Black Journalists Hall of Fame the same night as Alice Dunnigan. She was inducted posthumously. He was 94. It was a great evening, January 2013. And they mentioned at the time, Paul Brock, one of the founders of the NABJ, mentioned that both of them had written books about the events they covered. Simeon's had just come out. So it was a great time for this induction. And Paul Brock mentioned that through this new electronic miracle and computers and all, people right there in the audience could order a copy of his book by taking their smartphone and wiping it, swiping it across a, a Q something code <laughs> that in an ad that the University Press of Mississippi took in the program. And then he said, uh, oh, but please wait and do it afterwards. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, let them do it now. This is 50 years of this man's life went into this book. Why are we waiting? We went on with the program, and they mentioned Alice had also written a book. And I remembered this. I had met Alice Dunnigan at a, a, a jet Christmas party and at other social functions, but I never really knew her. I came to Washington in 66. By then, she had moved on to her third career in politics, working in the White House. So I, I didn't really know much about her journalism career. So when they mentioned that she had self-published in 1974 a memoir, an autobiography called A Black Woman's Experience, From Schoolhouse to the White House, the autobiography of Alice Dunnigan, I said, cool, I want to read this. It's about time. Well, I got a little surprise. When I went looking for it online, as most of us do when we go looking for a book we want to read at home, kicking back and taking our time, I couldn't find it. A little more searching, I found it available from a few old rare booksellers for over $100. Now, I wanted to read it, but I didn't want to read it that badly. So then I started looking at libraries. You couldn't find it except in the reference sections. And luckily, the Library of Congress had it, of course, and I live just a few blocks from here. So I ordered it from off-site, came over, started reading it, and as I said, I fell in love with Alice Dunnigan. Although, I must say, you got to know maybe more than you wanted to know because the book was over 670 pages. And... It took several visits to read it. And when I finished, I realized that of the three sections, growing up in Kentucky, coming to Washington, and then 
leaving journalism in 1960 to work in the White House as an education consultant with, uh, oh, first it was the EEOC and then it was the President's Council on Youth Opportunity. That part was less compelling than the earlier part. And I wanted people to read this book. So as one reviewer said lovingly later on, I took a machete to it, I'll admit it. I lobbed off the last third of the book. But anyone who wants to do that research into that era, era it's there. They can go, they can look for it. It's, it's in, the re in the reference section. But the rest of it, the two earlier parts are so compelling that it should be available to anybody. And I sent out a proposal to three academic publishers. All three wrote back immediately and said they wanted this book. One of them, though, the University of Georgia, recognized that this book should be priced so that people can buy it, not just libraries. One library and one publisher wanted to charge $45. I said, no. So it's, it's available now at a reasonable price. Someday, hopefully, it will also come out as a young reader's edition because Alice really wanted to reach the young readers. And anybody who has read it knows that it has great appeal to the, I would say, 9 to 16-year-old group. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that that happens. But let me talk about what she's talking about when, when Alice says, judge me, if we're going to judge me, and we do whether we want to or not, judge me by the depth from which I came. Alice was born in 1906 in a rural part of Kentucky, uh, Logan County. And she wanted to go to school so desperately from the time she was four years old. And it isn't that Alice was thinking, oh, my great intellect, I must go to school. Alice was lonely. She lived on a hill about four miles outside of Russellville, which was a small town of only 5,000. There were no other kids her age. So she starts off wanting to walk the four miles to Russellville to um, Sunday school. But then as she goes to school, she becomes uh, an admirer of the Sunday school teacher, Miss Arletta Vaughn. Miss Arletta Vaughn is respected, and she's lovely, and she gets in front of audiences, and she talks to people, and little Alice says, I want to be just like Miss Arletta when I grow up. So she goes to school every day, snow, whatever. Her father thinks she's crazy. Her mother bundles her up. She walks off by herself. The only other kid around is an 11-year-old brother who doesn't want anything to do with this little girl. He's half-brother and he, he finds her embarrassing. But pretty soon she comes to the realization that there are three careers available to a black woman in Kentucky at this time. One of them is to pursue an education and become a school teacher. The other two are to work as a domestic or to work in the fields. Her father is a sharecropper. Her mother takes in laundry. She just does not want that life for herself. And so she pursues the, the schooling to the degree where she becomes the valedictorian of the class. She graduates. It's, it's a fascinating story of how she pursues getting on to teacher education. But let me jump ahead. Somebody said in writing about her recently, he, he implied that she was timid. 
Well, let me just touch on some of the things in her life that show us that right from a little kid, Alice was never, ever timid. And if there's one thing we should take away and tell young girls today is you don't get anywhere by being timid. Alice goes to her first job, which is 30 miles away from home in Mount Pisgah. Mount Pisgah consists of all of uh, five houses, a church, and a rundown school. The nearest town is about mm, eight miles away, Trenton, Kentucky. Big population, 800. She is way out in the boonies. She takes one look at the school, and she doesn't say anything because she's so pleased, so proud to have her first job. She's 18 years old. As she walks in, the roof is leaking. The windows, two windows on each side that should be there, are covered with yellowing cardboard. The floor is rough, hewn, wood, uh, bare, and when you walk on it, dust rises. There, there are no, no desks. There are old church pews that have been discarded. And Cole, the teacher, being the first one to arrive at 7 in the morning, has to go out and shovel the coal, which is just dumped in the yard, into this pot belly stove that's rigged up. And rain or shine, the room has to be kept warm that way. And then she gets the real bad news. Well, second bad, second best, let's see. 45 students on average, 65 are enrolled, 45 on average come to the school. That's pretty good because in a rural area, the folks have to keep the kids home to work in the fields and there's bad weather and the long distance to travel. 45 kids, grades one through eight in one room. I, I kind of had to stop right there thinking, oh, my God, I couldn't do this. This doesn't faze Alice. One fact does. Nobody in the recollection of all the townspeople, all the people, the parents of this, those school children, nobody recalls anyone ever graduating from this school, from the eighth grade. Now, what you had to do to graduate in this county, Tide County, was to pass a test, same test for the black and the white students. And Alice knows right off the bat, these black kids are as smart as their white counterparts. So it's not that. She figures either they drop out, because boys especially are encouraged to drop out by the sixth grade. It's not manly to stay in school. You've got to get out and flex your muscles and, and work behind that mule and show that you're a man. So even her brother, he quits by the time he's in the sixth grade. So she says maybe they don't, they don't bother to take the test, they don't graduate from the eighth grade, or maybe they're intimidated because they think maybe the grading is going to be weighed against them, or maybe they're just not prepared. And she says, I am going to prepare these students. She's got three who are ready to graduate. Three girls, 16, 17, and 18. She makes that her top goal, and to jump ahead again, she succeeds. In the meantime, though, here's her first month on the job. At the end of the month, she goes down to the county seat. She gets a check, $65, more money than she's ever seen in her entire life. And she decides to see the white school superintendent. And she goes in with a long list of improvements that she wants made in the school. He is not happy. And she is not timid. Alice presents this list, but she is so gracious. Her son describes her as persistent. 
if she asks you for something on Monday and you don't give it to her, she'll be back on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday until she gets it. But she is the loveliest, politest, determined woman. So she's going to reason with this man, as she will people throughout her career, reason. Well, he quickly sees that a floor with dust rising from it is not healthy and they're going to have a lot of health problems with these kids. So he gives her some oil to throw on the floor to tamp down the dust. He realizes a leaky roof is a bad idea. And he realizes that windows that don't keep out the cold and that don't let in the light, not a good idea. So they're going to get new windows. And then he says, you know, I have a warehouse full of old desks that have been thrown out of white schools. He says, if you can bring somebody up here, they're yours. And so she does. So Alice pursues her teaching career along this, these lines. There are times when she gets a job in one of the Rosenwald schools, which you know were great improvement, uh, came about through a friendship between Julius Rosenwald, the Chicago um, um, philanthropist, and Booker T. Washington. So they're, they're a step up, but mostly she's in there. She's fighting all the way, but this is not what gets Alice. Alice is an activist from day one. This is another reason why we know there's no timidity in this woman. When she was a little kid, her mother would take her down to Russellville on Saturday, where everybody went on Saturdays. You went to buy anything that you needed. You went to meet friends, chat on the corner, hang out for a while. Well, there was only one bathroom for women, and it was in the courthouse, and it had a sign on it, white ladies. Alice would walk right in there when she needed to use the bathroom, to the point where her mother said to her, Alice, one of these days, one of them white women's going to beat you half to death, and there ain't nothing I'm going to be able to do about it. Well, Alice didn't care. She kept right on. That sign stayed there until well after the Civil Rights Act was passed, because if nobody made them take it down, they weren't going to take it down. But a number of things like this. She was not complacent, and it was the complacency that got her. Finally, when she's about 38 years of age, she tries to organize a civic league so that women who worked as domestics would demand at least a minimum wage. She, she tried to get them to say, hey, if you're not delivering the mail to black neighborhoods because the roads aren't paid, we'll pave the roads, and that kind of thing. Well, everybody sat there and said, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, great idea. Then they went home and told their white employers on her, she worked for the school system, so her job was immediately in jeopardy. That and an incident right, right in a drugstore downtown where she wanted to buy a Coke to wash down some aspirin because she had a migraine headache. And the clerk looks at her and says, we don't sell Coke to coloreds. She goes outside. She's sick on the curb. She's not anonymous by then because she's doing such a good job. People know who she is. So a woman walking by says, ain't that the teacher from Adairville? And Alice, she's so humiliated. She's wondering, do they think I'm drunk? Do they think I'm crazy? It's, it's just the end. She prays like crazy to get out of Kentucky. And then the war comes along, and she sees a notice, like so many people across the country, especially women, a notice hanging up in the post office. The government was recruiting typists to work in Washington. 
She filled out the form saying she'd work anywhere, could leave any time. So she had to go in and take the typing test. Well, there were no typewriters available. She hauled her own that she'd got a used typewriter somewhere. She hauls it in, even though it's unreliable. Some of the letters are crooked. She takes the test. She's nervous. But the postmaster says, wow, she did so well on the written part. He says, just calm down. Take the typing test over again. She does, and she passes. She gets a telegram on Wednesday before Thanksgiving saying, report to Washington, 9 a.m. at a government agency. She's on the train out of Russellville that Sunday, on to a whole new life. So then, now, oh, yeah, I just, that's, that's just a hint. A friend of mine who happens to be here today was reading the book a couple of months ago. And a few chapters into this, she called me and she said, I'm reading Alice Dunnigan's book. And I paused. She was waiting for me to say something. I was holding my breath. And she said, I love her. You read this book, you will love Alice Dunnigan. And she tells these stories so matter-of-factly, particularly during the Depression. She gets one of these make-work jobs from the WPA only because she goes in and raises heck over it. They're only giving these jobs to white women, to men books, sew clothes for kids, nothing for black women. So she makes a fuss, and they decide, okay, they have black women doing things like cleaning public buildings. Weren't many of them in Russellville. When they finish that, okay, pull up the onion grass in the black cemetery. Finish that, okay, go over to the white cemetery. Well, they didn't have any onion grass in the lovely white cemetery, so they had them scrubbing the tombstones. Well, while there, they could see the garbage truck coming out of town once a week and dropping its load into the town dump. And then the black women would race over there, once the truck was gone, race over there and find whatever produce had been dumped that still had some life in it, that was still edible. She, would, she described how you, you took the cabbage and you cut off the rotten part and you cooked the rest of it. If the, milk was, if the meat was beginning to get moldy, well, you just cut off the bad part, soaked it overnight and cook it. But this, there was no, oh, poor me, oh, feel sorry for me. It was more like a, here's how to get by if tough times ever come your way. It was like, very matter of fact. She is a journalist. She writes like a journalist. She doesn't write like Langston Hughes. She's not a poet. So when people say she wasn't a great writer, she was, I asked my husband, what do you make of that? He said, you don't have to be a great writer to be a great reporter. You just got to tell it like it is. So she comes on to Washington. She works in the government. She works her way up. She makes a fuss. She describes herself as a flea in the collar sometimes. So then the war ends, and these jobs are eliminated. Well, at the same time, she had been freelancing, as she did throughout her career as a teacher. She was freelance for the black press. She was freelancing for the Associated Negro Press, which was a news service founded by Claude Barnett in 1919, which served 110 black newspapers across the country and about 70 in West Africa, some of them Francophone Africa. So fortunately... Claude Barnett needs a Washington bureau chief at that time. His bureau chief is leaving. 
Alice prevails upon him to give her a chance. Well, he'd much rather have a man. He makes that clear. But he, he, he can't get a man. His letters, which are with the Chicago Historical Society, show that he offered two men much greater salaries than he ever paid Alice. But he gives her a chance. And he'll prove, as time goes on, Claude Barnett is a sexist. But so was just about every other newspaper man in existence. So he offers her one half cent a word. She tries that for a week. She makes about 25 bucks, and she says, nobody can live on this. So he doubles it to one penny a word for his stories. Believe me, she was prolific. So finally, he offers her a salary. But as I said, never as much as he, he offered a man. Well, you know, where's the mystery there? According to the latest report on uh, pay parity for women in this country, it'll be 2058 before we reach pay parity across the board. I won't be alive then. So what's up with that? This, this is just nothing new. But there was nothing she could do about it. She was very grateful to have the job. So Claude Barnett's method of covering the news is mainly um, clip and paste, you know, clip the white papers, send off stories, talk to maids, talk to butlers, talk to chauffeurs, talk to court clerks, and, and, and not make a pain in the neck of yourself. This was not Alice's way of, of proceeding. She wanted to be wherever the white press was. So she tells him that's what she's going to do. Okay, he just, okay. So her first assignment is to cover the Senate debate over the ouster of Senator Theodora Bilbo of Mississippi for conduct unbecoming a senator campaign finance irregularities. She goes to Capitol Hill. She's waiting in this long line of spectators who want to get in and see the proceedings. And she's so frustrated, she realizes she'll never get in in time to get her story. And then she also finds out, even if she had gotten in, it's against the rules to take notes while you're in there. But she sees these men walking by, going up a stairway that's cordoned off with red velvet with two Capitol policemen standing there. And she realizes they're newsmen. So she says, here I go. She follows them. The cops stop her and say, where do you think you're going? She says, I'm going wherever they're going. So the cop says, well, I don't think you belong up there, but if not, they'll let you know. She goes up the stairs. She opens the doors. And she's looking up upon, this is a woman who does not have an office in Washington, no secretary, no typewriter, no wire service. Here is this fantastic layout for members of the Capitol Press. They have Western Union machines, they have lounge chairs, they have mimeographs, they have forms for sending in their copy, and then beyond that, those doors through which they enter the, the galley and can watch the proceedings. And a man comes up to her and, and asks her what she's doing, and she says, um, well, I came to watch the debate of Senator Bilbo. And he says, well, you have to be a member. She says, fine, how do I become a member? And he says, well, we actually have too many members now. There isn't enough room for all of them. And she says, really? And how many of them are Negro? <laughs> well, um, actually... <laughs> So he gives her a form to fill out. Well, it turns out there's no rule against a black member, but the rule is what we call disparate impact. It says 
you have to be a writer for the daily press. All the black papers at that time, except perhaps the Atlanta Daily World, were weekly newspapers. Ergo, no black members. Well, she campaigns, campaigns. She calls Claude Barnett and says, I, I want to go after this. I want your backing. And he says, what makes you think that you, a woman, can get in where men have not succeeded all these years? Well, she says, well, I'm going to try. So she does, and she actually gets the rule changed. They changed the rule to allow the uh, weekly press in. But she's not the first one admitted. Because Claude Barnett is so sure she's not going to make it, he doesn't send in the necessary letter of recommendation. So Louis Lautier, who works for the competing, uh, at the time called Negro Newspaper Publishers Association, uh, he's the first one in. She's the second member. Well, she goes on from there. She says, how about the White House? She goes down to the, the, the House and Senate are Republican control. She goes down to the Democratic controlled White House and she says, well, this is what the Republicans did for us. What are you going to do? And Charlie Ross, who's Truman's press secretary, says, no problem, just send in a letter. So she does, and she doesn't even ask for Claude Barnett's support. So she gets into the White House press corps. She's the first black woman admitted. And then shortly after, she notices in the press room a notice that the president is going to take an 18-state tour, whistle-stop tour of, of the West. It's considered non-political, but of course, it's just uh, preparatory to his deciding he's going to be a candidate for his own four-year term. So she says, well, I want to go. So uh, how, do I, how do I do this? So Charlie Ross says, no problem. Uh, just sign up, and it's $1,000 per reporter. Well, she tries not to show her surprise. She assumed that the White House would pay the way for any reporter that went along. And he told her, no, no, each press outlet pays their own way. So she goes back and she calls Claude Barnett herself, long distance, and Claude Barnett says, this is not the kind of trip a woman takes. <laughs> so she says, I want to go. And he says, well, is it worth $1,000 to you? And she says, yes. And he says, well, it isn't worth, worth it to me or any of my member papers. Well, she says, I'm going anyway, as long as I have your permission. Obviously, she needs his consent because she needs the credentials. So he says, okay, I'll ask my largest newspapers. So he consults the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, and the Norfolk Journal and Guide. The latter is, is not interested at all. The other two, who are highly competitive, say, well, we might as well send our own men. So they send two men along on this trip. So now there's three black members of the press going, one woman, Doris Fleeson, who was reporting for the New York Post. She went along only till Detroit. So for most of the trip, Alice is the only woman on the whole trip. Well, she's newly arrived in Washington. She's She's never covered anything like this. You, you can imagine getting into an assignment like this without any experience. So she goes to this car on the train where they mimeograph all the president's speeches and they have canned background reports and all kinds of paper everywhere. And she's trying to gather up every little bit of information. And then Eddie Foliard, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for the Washington Post, 
who had covered every president back to Calvin Coolidge. He comes up to her and he says, Alice, you don't do it that way. I'll tell you how to cover this kind of trip. You get off the train at every stop. You mingle with the people. You ask them questions. You get quotes. You kind of take their pulse on how they feel about the president. And that's what makes your story unusual. So pretty soon she's writing in true, as she called it, foliard style. But she's got another uh, challenge. She's writing for only the black press. So as Claude Bar Barnett makes perfectly clear, she's got to have a black angle. Well, in many of these towns out west, there weren't any blacks. So she didn't have a black angle. So she was not about to have no story. At most of these stops, the other two guys from Chicago and Pittsburgh didn't even bother to get off the train. They figured, Boop, no black angle. Alice found a black angle. She writes, there was not a single Negro in the crowd at such and such a place when such and such happened. And then she'd go on with whatever interesting happened in that town. Well, then one night in Missoula, Montana, college town, they weren't supposed to stop at all. It was midnight and everybody had gone to bed. But they got word that a crowd of college students, several hundred, had gathered along the tracks in hopes of seeing the president. And Harry Truman comes out on that platform at the end of the last car. They stop the train. And in his pajamas and robe, Harry Truman talks to the students. And then he takes questions. Now, up to this point, nobody had mentioned civil rights. Civil rights was not popular in 1947 and for several years thereafter. So the politician didn't bring it up, but one of those students did. All of a sudden, a hand goes up in the crowd, and this young man yells, Mr. President, what do you say about civil rights? And the president shoots back, I say civil rights is as old as the Constitution and as new as the Democratic platform of 1944. And then he intimates that it will be included in the platform of 1948. And Alice has her story, a nice exclusive, and the headline is, Pajama-clad president defends civil rights at midnight. <laughs> well, they go on. She, there is only one nasty, no, oh, it only lasts a minute or so, racial incident out in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And it's handled, and Alice is cool with it. Everything is fine. A few days later, she's sitting in her compartment at the end of the day, there's no stops scheduled. She kicks off her shoes and puts her feet up on the seat opposite hers. And she takes one of those little tray tables and puts it across her lap, puts the typewriter on her lap, and starts to bang out her copy. There's a little tap on the door, and the door opens, and it's President Truman. <laughs> and he says, I heard you had some trouble back there. And if anything ever happens again, I want you to make sure I'm told about it. And Alice is just never the same after that. She, she never felt so secure in her life. And she never felt so that, you know, here's the president coming to me. And I can do fine in any audience. And it, it, this, this kind of thing, experience, 
it really fits her very well later on when she's covering the news conferences. She does fine at Truman's news conferences, which are held in the Oval Office, but then they, they grew larger and moved next door to the old executive office building, which was the State Department, and Eisenhower held them in the treaty room. Well, she, she carried forward to her same protocol, which was to bring forward civil rights issues because none of the white press ever raised a civil rights issue. So each time she would bring to light some problem going on in the government. Uh, questions like, um, was the administration going to do anything about the situation at the Bureau of Engraving where apprentice uh, plate makers are, are not admitting black apprentices? And this Federal Employment Practices Committee has found that that's a violation of their civil rights, and the Civil Service Commission has agreed, but the Bureau of Engraving isn't doing anything. So Alice brings this up at a news conference, and the president gets annoyed. Eisenhower had a very short fuse at these conferences. As he explained, and his staff explained, he wanted to be able to answer any question that came up, so he wanted to to know the field. He didn't know much about civil rights, and it was, you know, thorny, controversial. He really didn't want to answer questions. Every question she asked was along those lines. Finally, she was asked to submit her questions in advance, but she wasn't about really to do that. She tried it once, and <laughs> it didn't work, and she realized she was being had. But Eisenhower had his own way of dealing with it. He completely ignored her for the rest of his term. In his first few years, he had called on her four, five, six times at these news conferences, which was a pretty good rate. And then nothing. Alice became the invisible woman at Eisenhower's news conferences to the effect she would stand up like everybody else, Mr. President, Mr. President. One white reporter says to her after one of the news conferences, do you realize how many times you were on your feet today? And she says, no, I wasn't counting. And he says, 15. Well, finally, it makes the white press. Drew Pearson, the columnist, uh, several newspapers, they point out Eisenhower is ignoring this member of the black press deliberately. Well, he calls on her a few years later when they're going to televise, tape for television, a news conference because he wants it he wants to show that he recognizes uh, a black uh, news, news person. But other than that, he ignores her. And then she takes a leave of absence to work in the Kennedy campaign. And then she goes back after Kennedy is elected to be to, um, covering the White House. Eight minutes into his first news conference in January 1961, JFK calls on Alice Dunnigan, first black woman, first black reporter to be called on in this news conference. And she says in her lovely Kentucky drawl, which I cannot imitate because I am from the Bronx. <laughs> she says, Mr. President, does your administration intend to do anything to help the black farmers of Fayette County, Tennessee, who dared to vote in the last election and have been evicted from their homes and are now forced to live in tents. And without hesitation, JFK comes back with, 
Yes, we do. I supported the Civil Rights Act, referring to the Civil Rights Act such as it was of 1958, and the Justice Department is charged with enforcing the voting rights of every American, and we intend to pursue this situation with vigor. And thus ends Alice Dunnigan's purda at White House news conferences. Shortly after that, she leaves the press and gets a political appointment, and she, from then on she can at least live decently because it's been hand-to-mouth pawning her watch on Fridays and rough life. And finally she becomes a government employee, and she lives out until, 19, until she was uh, 77. She writes her memoirs, and the problem is... Uh, it's very popular at the time in the black press. She gets very good press from the Afro-American, but now the book is largely unavailable. And so brings me here today. And I'd be delighted to take your questions. I hope I haven't run on too long. Thank you. Any questions? Yes. I'd be delighted. That picture was taken by Skurlock Studios. Now, Addison Skurlock started a photography studio here in Washington, as the Museum of African American History is well aware, in, in 1911. And in the late 30s, he was joined by his two sons, Robert and, and George. And they became the photographers of the black middle class. There are fantastic pictures of people like Ralph Bunch, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, that was the studio you went to. And Alice commissioned or, you know, she hired one of the Skurlocks. I don't know if it was Robert or George. I'm thinking probably Robert to take this picture. And then she would send it out to the uh, members of the ANP, let them know. She was their person here in Washington. There's one curious little thing. Um, if you look on the cover of the book, this picture, she's holding, and you can see it, she's holding the Washington Post. And I, I, There's a story in there, but I don't know what it is, because the Washington Post did not have any black reporters until 1951. And I know that because my husband, Simeon Booker, was the first black reporter that Phil, Phil Graham brought in. And it was two years, very, very difficult years, because the newsroom was not ready, despite the intentions of the uh, management of the Post. And then he left and went to Chicago and joined Jet and Ebony magazines. But I'm, I'm just wondering if Alice was trying to identify the scene so that people wouldn't think it was any old state capital behind her or if there was a little joke in there, I don't know. But anyway, she's holding the Washington Post, and it's a lovely picture. Yes. Did she ever marry Abby Yes. Alice married twice. She was Alice Allison. She married twice. The first was when she was only 19, after one year in rural Mount Pisgah. She married the church organist, and he seemed to be so supportive and such a lovely young man. But it didn't take long before it turned out he was not only a mama's boy, 
He wanted her to leave teaching and come join the family as sharecroppers. She had worked all of her life to get out of that. She wasn't about to give it up. And you only taught school five months out of the year. The rest of the time, the kids were in the fields. So the rest of the time, she had to earn money. So they would, they would work as she would be a laundress. She would take care of a dairy. She would take care of uh, white children, uh, clean white families' homes, whatever needed to be done. But they had a very, very hard time. And, and her clothes became so shabby. And clothing to Alice was a symbol of your dignity, your status, the respect that was due you. And when her shoes became so shabby, she was ashamed to go to Sunday school. She told her husband, Walter, I'm not going. And he said, I can't show up in school looking this way. And he said, I don't care if you never leave the house again. Oh, he was just dreadful. <laughs> and then two weeks later, she said, well, this isn't working. So she said, I'll show you I'm going to Sunday school anyway and let people see these shabby shoes and they'll know that you won't let me get decent shoes. And he said, I thought the most astonishing thing. He said, I don't care if you go to church looking like the devil. <laughs> so Alice, then she has to go back to school. And to do that, she has to stay in another town uh, for the week and then come home on weekends. Well, he's not going to have anything to do with that. And he tells her if she leaves, she can just stay away. And she says, well, that's an idea. <laughs> and after five years, from 19 till the age of 24, uh, she, she and Walter split up. A year later, a young man who was five years older than she, two years younger than her brother, and played with her brother, but didn't want anything to do with little Alice, Charles Dunnigan, comes back to town, having left school in the sixth grade and gone off to the north, become very worldly, married, widowed. He comes back to town. And you can imagine how much more worldly he would seem and how much more, you know, glamorous to, to Alice. And, and she's educated and he's sort of educated by the world. And they decide to get married. Well, then she, she has her first child, Robert, who lives out in uh, Suitland, a delightful man who loves his mother but was raised by his grandparents because it was tough times and for her to keep working uh, as a teacher, uh, she, she took the help from her parents to raise the little boy. So that was Charles done again. But then, then the, the depression came and Charles didn't have a job and he couldn't stand the shame of not being able to support his family. And so he leaves. He kept leaving. He'd come back, and then he'd leave again. And it, so it was the system, really, in both situations that destroyed Alice's marriage. It wasn't, and I'm telling you, they were some good-looking dudes. But once you got past that, they, there was nothing in common, nothing to keep the marriage together and keep it going, although she tried very hard. Any more questions? Well, I'm sure if you read this book, and I can say, since I didn't write it, I only took the machete and cut it shorter so that people would, would, would read it, I can say you will fall in love with Alice Dunnigan. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you. Well, Carol, you've shared not only 
the period of time in which uh, this all occurred, but you shared a lot of yourself that went into this book, and we thank you for it. And uh, we don't care if it was a machete or a <laughs> pair of scissors. Uh, you've, you've brought her to life, and uh, it's wonderful to have you back. Thanks. Now, there is going to be a book signing in the back, and please uh, have a chance to talk to Carol a little more. And it's been a pleasure to have you here. Outside on the table, there's also a schedule of future events coming up for the Center for the Book, and also an issue of the new Library of Congress magazine, which got put out just in time for the book festival. It's a quarterly, but it's devoted to the joy of reading. And a good chunk of that uh, is about what promoting reading and promoting books and writing and writers and uh, people like the person that we just, the editor uh, that we just met. So thanks for joining us. Pick, us, pick up this, and let's give a final round of applause to Carol. This has been a presentation of the Library of Congress. Visit us at loc.gov. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a lecture at the Library of Congress on uh, the lifetimes and contributions of uh, Alice Dunnigan, African-American woman journalist, during uh, the early and mid-1960s, uh, 19th, uh, 20th century, excuse me. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment.
Welcome back, uh, Phyllis Hyman, uh, Your Move, My Heart. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio and Broadcast. And we want to uh, move uh, to our concluding segment uh, involving a question and answer period with the uh, African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Let's listen in. Okay, so our first question is from Alex Winning from Reuters in Johannesburg. Alex says, is the Africa CDC and or the WHO Africa worried that countries like South Africa are sitting on large vaccine stocks, which either could expire or could be better used in other parts of the continent? And should there be more sharing of vaccine doses between African countries to address this challenge? Uh, of course, we, we are concerned with, with that. And we know that uh, with respect to sharing South Africa, is probably uh, one of the only African countries that has actively been involved in sharing vaccines. Um, the problem is not because uh, the government of South Africa doesn't want to vaccinate. The problem is the community uptake. And this is again an opportunity for me to appeal to the continent that uh, unless and until we get out there and get vaccinated, uh, we are not going to get rid of this um, terrible pandemic. So again, my direct appeal to the population in South Africa to get out and cooperate uh, more with the government of South Africa and get their vaccine. Okay, we have a question sister from the Portuguese news agency, Lusa. Maria says, 14th February marks the second anniversary of the first case of the coronavirus infection in Africa. Could you please provide some comments on what went wrong and what went well in these past two years? And also a comment on how you see the situation evolving going forward. So thank you. That's a very interesting question. You're right. Um, the, the 14th of February will mark exactly two years since the continent uh, started recognizing or identifying the, the COVID-19 cases. Uh, let me start with the success stories. If you recall, uh, on the 14th, when we, the news of that uh, event, that is the first cases of COVID-19 occurred in Egypt. One week later, the leadership of the continent rallied around, and uh, we had a, a, a summit of all ministers of health in Addis Ababa. It was the first time that in one week we could convene all ministers of health in Addis Ababa under the leadership of Chairperson Musa Faki Mohammed to develop a joint continental strategy. So I think what worked so well for the continent was the ability to cooperate, to coordinate, to communicate, and to collaborate. It worked uh, uh, very, very effectively 
at the start, to the extent that when ministers left Addis Ababa and cases started occurring uh, mostly around March, I was, there was just clarity of action of what to do. And some countries actually took very drastic measures where with the occurrence of one case, they went into a state of emergency or, or lockdown. And it really helped blunt the spread of, of, of the, the virus. Second thing is the innovation that we learned that went well for the continent. Uh, we established, and I'll not name all of them, you know some of those, uh, about 10 different initiatives as part of that joint continental strategy, including the, the, the platform to get uh, commodities, what we call the African Medicine Supply Platform, um, and AVAD, the, the PAC initiative, which was a, a designed to accelerate testing. So a lot of good things happened uh, for the continent. What, uh, of course, didn't go well was uh, the, the overall uh, collaboration within uh, the international community to get access to diagnostics and access to vaccines and access to personal protective equipment. That um, was a challenge, uh, a, a tremendous challenge at the start of, of that, to the extent that even when countries had money, uh, in April and March of 2020, there was no way to go get uh, diagnostics or uh, PPE. So it was very challenging uh, at that point. And to conclude, it also uh, uh, showed us that the continent was very, very ill-prepared. Uh, so we are very pleased that uh, the political leadership that the chairperson of the African Union Commission, uh, Chairperson Musa Faki, and our COVID champion, uh, President Siri Ramaphosa, exercise between 2020 and now has been remarkable. I mean, I call that effective hands-on uh, leadership that has contributed significantly in fighting this pandemic. We hope and continue to be, uh, be positive that that level of political leadership will uh, continue. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, before I give you the next question, let me just remind colleagues that uh, they are quite free to come through live on this Zoom platform mm -hmm. and also to continue sending their questions either through that WhatsApp number or through the question and answer section on this platform. Let's move over now to WhatsApp and we have a question from Sarah Jervin who is with DevEx. Can you discuss more details on the path forward on the Africa CDC becoming a public health agency? And I think that's a follow-up to the developments um, at the summit that ended uh, just a few days ago. No, wonderful. I think that's a very good question, uh, Sarah. Then we have now, as Africa CDC submitted, uh, as requested by uh, the head of state, uh, a roadmap for the operationalization of that decision, which includes um, providing a detailed structure to the uh, subcommittee in the, the PRC, the PRC, the Permanent Representative Committee, that will review that and approve it. And then it goes to them, the Specialized Technical Committee. And we have uh, all of this must be done before, next, uh, before June, excuse me, before the, mid, um, the media summit in June. So those are the two critical, uh, and in doing that, we also need to provide to that subcommittee, they call it the structure subcommittee, uh, the financial implications of what uh, the, the new Africa CDC um, uh, status will, will bring to the overall uh, financial burden of, uh, or financial implications of the commission. So those are the things that we need to do. And again, as I said, uh, we didn't waste any time to rest. We have submitted that to the leadership of the commission. And uh, in a matter of, of, of weeks or so, I'm sure that 
uh, the deputy chairperson will be convening uh, a, a task force again to start working on that immediately. Because June is not very far. We have to get uh, ourselves going. So uh, the short and long of the answer is that by June of this year, we should be able to, if everything goes right, to be able to finalize that. <clears throat> All right. Thank you, John. We have two questions from James Macharia Chege. And the first one is that you've mentioned that the BA2, the BA2 Omicron variant is now dominant in South Africa. Preliminary data from Denmark and the UK suggests that the BA2 may have higher intrinsic transmissibility than Omicron. But scientists say that at present, the Omicron BA2 is not of great concern, neither is it a game changer. What is your view? Perhaps let's take that one and I'll come back with the second one later. No, absolutely. I think I, looking at that, uh, what the, 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 the behavior of that uh, lineage, uh, I, I don't think we should, uh, be, we should panic because of that, that variant. Uh, even if the transmissibility is higher than the, the parent Omicron, we don't see severity of disease and we don't see any differences in vaccine response. So, I will leave it, leave it at that, that uh, it may actually um, not be a game changer. And I'll use the word may very deliberately, but we'll see what happens. But again, absolutely no cause for, 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 to panic uh, if we do the right thing. That is, we use the right mask uh, with social distance as much as, as we can. I just explained to you that we did a COVID-free conference. I mean, there were more than 2,000 delegates that attended this, uh, the, the, um, the summit and the data is what I shared with you. So I think we continue to now know how to manage, uh, how to live with this uh, variant. But I have, I'm absolutely not uh, worried about um, uh, the, that variant. Uh, I can only be worried that if people behave differently, which is they don't respect uh, uh, social distancing, people don't wear masks. I think I'll continue to encourage, use that op the opportunity of addressing this question to encourage uh, our population to go out there and get vaccinated. These vaccines work great. They are safe, they work great, including working against these Omicron variants and lineages. Back over the COVID-19 pills. Welcome back. And uh, that's going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast for today, uh, Saturday, uh, February the 12th, 2022. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to our program. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, to the Pan-African Radio Network, that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We're going to close out uh, the program uh, with the sound of uh, Hank Mobley. Uh, it's entitled Hank Mobley's Message, recorded in 1956. This is Abayomi Azikwe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.